If Bob Mueller does the entire investigation and does it appropriately and it produces no more indictments and Donald Trump gets to say, see, I told you the whole thing was a hoax. From a rule of law point of view, that's a win. It may not be a political win, but that is all we can ask of Bob Mueller. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. A little over a week ago, a strange thing happened at the Munich Security Conference. Cem Özdemir, famous German politician, the first German MP of Turkish heritage to enter the Bundestag, the former leader of the German Green Party, checked in at his hotel and was seen by the bodyguards of Turkish Prime Minister Yildirim. They went to the organizers and the police and complained about the presence of a terrorist in the hotel. That terrorist was supposed to be Özdemir. Terrorist, if you don't know, is the favorite term that Recep Erdogan and his regime apply to any domestic opponent from journalists like the recently freed Denis Yücel to political opponents. What should the German police have done in this situation? Well, a few ideas come to mind. They could have charged the security guards with intimidating a German politician. They could have asked them to leave the country. But instead, they gave police protection to Özdemir and told him that he couldn't have breakfast in his own hotel. A German politician stopped from going about his day in the way that he wanted to on German ground because the police yielded to the threats of the security forces of a dictatorship in another country. Now, unfortunately, I think that this relatively harmless comedy of a missed breakfast is indicative of a much larger problem. Liberal democracies are not doing a good enough job of standing up for the principles. When the Polish Prime Minister at the same Munich Security Conference said that there had been Jewish as well as Polish perpetrators in the Holocaust, nobody in the room seemed to protest. When I was at a big international conference at which Erdogan spoke about half a year ago and he called journalists terrorists, people applauded politely. My point is not that we should never speak to people like Erdogan or, for that matter, Vladimir Putin. In international politics, we obviously need to negotiate with people we dislike. But we should do that from a polite distance, rather than pretending that we're friends and starting to actually undermine our own principles in order to keep them happy. Liberal democracy is in dangerous times now, and to stand up for it, we must actually have the courage to embrace our own principles. One man who is fighting for liberal democratic principles in an admirable way is Benjamin Wittes. He is a fellow at Brookings Institution and the founder of the Lawfare Blog, which has been talking about the intersection of politics and what Mr. Trump likes to call the deep state long before it was fashionable. But since Trump got elected, Lawfare really has become the central go-to place for anybody who's trying to understand the latest development in special counsels, Mueller's probe, and the latest attacks by the Trump administration on the independence of institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice. Ben and I had a really great, far-ranging conversation. It was a lot of fun sitting down with him, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. One of the central themes of the Trump administration for the past years has been attacks on the FBI and other independent institutions. And it seems to me like there's some signs that he succeeded to a surprising degree. Not only do Republicans in Congress seem to now be complicit in undermining the Mueller investigation, in smearing the political integrity of the FBI, but polls show that a very large number of Republicans, who certainly weren't historically critical of the FBI, now see it in a negative light. You know, a little over a year into the administration, to what degree do you think that Trump is actually succeeding in eroding bipartisan support for those crucial institutions? Well, so first of all, I don't think it will be remotely surprising if 
a long-term sustained effort by the president and the media echo chamber that supports him is effective in eroding confidence in intelligence and law enforcement institutions. And the simple reason for that is that the confidence that exists in the intelligence and law enforcement apparatus of the United States is a carefully constructed confidence. And it was built after Watergate. It had to be built because Watergate and the surrounding civil rights era uh, revelations of misconduct by those agencies had so egregiously affected people's uh, sense of their own government and what it did. And it has required very careful attention over a long period of time to maintain it. And that this attention, which has been attention on the part of courts, Congress in the oversight uh, department and the executive branch itself, as well as important work by press to expose problems and then ventilate the corrections of those problems over time. This iterative process of confidence building, which has been very successful, has also coexisted with a Hollywood culture in which the portrayal of these agencies is relentlessly conspiratorial and villainous and, you know, very deeply conditioned by Watergate era themes and even pre-Watergate themes of, you know, think about the Manchurian candidate or the parallax view, right? Both of which actually predate Watergate. Uh, and so this sort of idea of the surveillance state as this menacing, dangerous omnipresence has coexisted in popular culture over a very long period of time with this very careful project of building public confidence. And so I don't think it's at all surprising that if the president suddenly starts talking about the intelligence community and the law enforcement community in a fashion that neatly maps onto the popular culture understanding, uh, that has a certain resonance for a group of people of frankly indeterminate size, but it's, it's very dissonant with the way leadership talks about these communities. And it's very dangerous precisely because it probably works to some degree. You're right. There's long been a lot of negative portrayals of the law enforcement community, a lot of skepticism of it. What's interesting for us that the partisan valence has flipped. It used to be mostly, as you're saying, Hollywood, I mean, which is often a code work for liberals and lefties and so on, uh, with some amount of reason. It used to be people on the left who were deeply critical of these agencies and people on the right who were much more uncritical and, and defensive of them. Um, you know, you're in the weird position where you started the Lawfare blog in part as a vehicle to critically engage with, but also defend the law enforcement community and the national security community. And that wasn't particularly popular on the left. And now you've sort of become, in a way, a hero on the left, going on MSNBC all of the time and so on. I mean, what do you think that the left has actually gotten wrong about the FBI or, for that matter, the CIA or the NSA that they should take away from this moment, even beyond Trump? That's a profoundly important question, but it's not just the left that got things wrong about this community. It was that this community, to some degree... Uh, got things wrong about the American political spectrum, and, and that there is an important new conversation that should happen in light of everything that has happened over the last two, three years, where these communities should, and I think are actually looking uh, differently at one another, and there should be a dialogue that has not uh, yet taken place in a serious way. So look, we started Lawfare because the conversation over the coercive powers of the federal government in the national security space, the debate over those powers, the authorization of them, the legality of them, this whole debate was overly conditioned by, on the one hand, the litigating positions of the federal government, and on the other hand, the human rights and civil liberties community. And we thought that it would be useful and interesting to have a sustained publication 
that in which that treated the government as the audience rather than as the subject. So instead of saying, you know, the government did X today, here's why we denounce it, or here's why. But to say, here, you know, here's a problem that people are thinking about in government, let's work through it. Mm -hmm. And to do that in a fashion that was directed at and useful to the people who actually had to make decisions. Now, embedded in that decision to, to structure a publication that way is a respect for what they do and a belief that the problems that they have are are worthy of our moral and intellectual energies. And there is implicitly in that a defense of what they're doing rather than an implied denunciation. So, so what's the nature of that defense? I mean, if you want to point to one or two of the main things that its critics tended to get wrong, is it about the motivations? This is what something you just mentioned. Is it about a lack of seriousness about the nature of threats that the government was responding to? Where would you lay the blame at people who didn't have a sympathetic view? Where do you think they actually went too far and they went wrong? Well, so let me give you an example that has always bothered me from the early days of Lawfare. So early in Lawfare's life, I spent personally a lot of time writing about the Guantanamo litigations. In fact, the Guantanamo litigations were one of the things that led to the creation of lawfare in the first place. And what always bothered me about these cases was, so I agree that holding somebody in military detention over a long period of time is an act that raises human rights concerns. And I certainly would never argue that that is not we shouldn't evaluate a decision to detain in human rights terms. But then you had these situations where we would release somebody and they would go and turn around and do something awful. You know, a suicide bombing in which 15 people are killed. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever evaluated the decision to release those people in human rights terms. And you say, well, wait a minute, why not? It is, after all, an affirmative government action. It's affirmative government action to set somebody free whom the courts have said they are lawfully entitled to hold, whom the courts have said they are actually part of enemy forces in an ongoing armed conflict. And you make a decision to release that person, and that is an unalloyed human rights good in the eyes of the current debate. And I think that's wrong. I think that is an action with potential human rights consequences that need to be evaluated as such. And we call those, ironically, we call those security consequences. But they're actually, you know, to the extent that the security involves the human rights of the putative victims, it's not. It's not. So, so it seems to me like there's two slightly different things. Now, it may be that they are not, that the importance of them is not as differential as a lot of people would like to think, right? But in one case, it is the government directly doing something to somebody, which is to detain them. And in the other, it is, uh, as a result of a government decision, somebody else doing something, which is to say the person who's now released going ahead and doing something very bad. So, now, I think you definitely want to take both of those things very seriously morally. And I think it's a little too easy to say, well, you know, we released this person. Perhaps we had good reason to think that we might go on to do bad things. But we didn't do it. So who cares about the 15 people who've now died in a suicide bombing? I agree that that's facile. But I see why there's a difference in how people think about it or talk about it, where one is a question of how do we preserve our rights against the state, not to be mistreated directly by the state. Another question is, well, what are the consequences of government policy and are we willing to live with those bad consequences? Right. So I, I guess what I would say is the answer is we are very willing to live with those bad consequences, particularly when the civilians who are killed are, say, Iraqi civilians. And we are very concerned about the moral and human rights consequences of the detention when we do it, have to do it ourselves. We're much less concerned about the moral qualities of detention if they're being done by an allied force of ours. This is, of course, a larger theme in some of those debates, right? I mean, I think it's very easy to cast people who are certainly against Guantanamo, but also against sort of certain forms of military interventions as a sort of moral people who stand on principle. But often it's a, it's a principle that can be a little self-involved because it is all about what should we do? What is it okay for our government to do? How should we get our hands dirty? That's quite comfortable leaving out of sight the ways in which not acting harms a lot of other people. And also pretending 
that actions are non-actions. So, you know, then the Guantanamo example is a great example of this. This is not a decision not to detain somebody in the first place. This is an affirmative decision to free, to fly to another country and set free somebody whom you know to be a participant in a military struggle against you. And to do that fully aware that you are creating potential risk for a certain group of people. And there is an embedded judgment, how big a problem is that for us? And I do have a moral problem with the way we have tended to think about that question. And more than I have a problem with the answer that we've reached, with which I'm uncomfortable, I had a very deep-seated problem with the fact that the conversation wasn't even being had. So when we started Lawfare, one of the things that I spent a lot of time on was that exact set of questions. And that exact questions over a wide array of areas. What are the human rights consequences of human rights policy? Thought I spent a lot of time on it with drones. We spent a lot of time on it with Guantanamo stuff. And I believe as a general matter that the left, I don't want to paint with a broad brush because the left in this stuff is extremely diverse. But I think the, the center of gravity is insufficiently or tr has traditionally been insufficiently attentive to the moral, political, legal, and practical consequences of not using and not having certain government authorities. And I want to say the Russia investigation is a great example of this that I think a lot of people on the left should pause a minute and take notice, which is, do you want to defend your political system against interventions from hostile foreign intelligence actors? The answer uh, aggressively and loudly, and with which I completely agree from the left, is yes. And the shame of the Trump right for having a blasé attitude toward that is, is extreme. I'm, I so completely identify with the left's orientation with this. But let's ask a serious question. How do you do that investigation without the surveillance authorities that a lot of people on the left are uncomfortable with? And the answer is you can't. And so if you are serious about certain of these national security imperatives, including the ones that we're all obsessed with right now, is very hard to understand, at least for me, how you purport to effectuate that national security good or set of goods without a set of authorities that, you know, the left tends to be anxious about. And that's an underplayed fact of, as you call it, la ferruse, um, that actually a lot of the outrage from the Trump administration is at the fact that various people who were in a broader sense associated with your campaign, who were members of a campaign, had been surveyed by American institutions. Okay, um, let me, and let you me, could imagine if it had been the other way around, a lot of people on the left being absolutely outraged by that as well, right? So I think it is worth thinking about what the consequences of it are and examining very carefully under what circumstances that surveillance is legitimate. It seems to me like in this case it was, but that might push my intuition on other cases in which it might be. Let's nail this down to brass tacks, right? We learned about the DNC hack because of surveillance. Hmm. We attribute, we were able to attribute it because of other surveillance, probably some of the same and some other surveillance, right? I have personally received a call from the FBI informing me that I was being targeted by a bad cybersecurity actor, which I assume to have been not domestic. I am quite certain that the FBI was aware of that because of surveillance. By the way, I, I may have been the subject of incidental collection. That may be the reason right. somebody overseas was doing something bad and Uh, you were just talking to Paul Manafort a little bit too much. I was you know, talking to him about the money we were laundering, and, and he was under surveillance, right? And that resulted in a warning to me that I should batten down my hatches a little bit from a cybersecurity perspective. We know that Michael Flynn lied to the FBI because of surveillance. 
you can just keep going, right? Mm -hmm. And you say, if you're concerned about these things and you're cheering every time one of these dominoes falls or every time we learn something new, you need to spend some time thinking to yourself about whether maybe you believe that the intelligence community should have certain authorities that they're using every day for purposes like this. And, and conversely, I think there is a serious conversation to be had in the intelligence community and in the law enforcement community. Uh, the intelligence community, by the way, tends to be more liberal than the law enforcement community, which tends to be more conservative. A lot of exceptions to that. But, you know, the law enforcement and intelligence worlds have tended to have a hostile kind of not hostile relationship with the left, but the left looks at them askance and they feel attacked by them. And right now, that is not what is happening. And that has been noticed by a lot of people who, you know, would not have thought of themselves as having camaraderie to have with lefty groups. You know, one set of questions is about how much surveillance should we be comfortable with? How critically should we view things like Guantanamo? Let's leave those for a moment to a side and think about the core democratic norms here, right? I mean, obviously, we want to make sure that the FBI is not subject to political pressure so that it starts investigating people because the president wants them investigated, or indeed that it doesn't drop investigations because the president wants those investigations dropped. Now, over the past year, uh, Donald Trump has quite effectively attacked that independence made it a partisan issue, whether you think that the director of the FBI should be immune from certain forms of political pressure. How does everybody else in the political system respond to it? Because the obvious instinct is to say that everybody who's not a Trumpist should every day be emphasizing how important this independence is, how outrageous Trump's attacks are, and so on. Of course, my fear is that this will only help to deepen the polarized partisan nature of support for the FBI. So how can never Trumpers, how can the resistance rally to defend the FBI and the investigation of a special counsel, Bob Mueller, against the onslaught from the Trump administration without actually politicizing the nature of these institutions even more deeply, which in the long run would precisely be to set Donald Trump up to win? Yes, of course. It's a deep question. And I, Thank you. Apparently, all of my questions are deep today. I uh, appreciate that. Well, I, you know, <laughs> so first of all, it is very important never to demand of these institutions something that you would be offended if your political enemy demanded and got. Is there um, an example of that from recent months where you feel like people were demanding something of the FBI that they shouldn't have been? No, but I do think there is an expectation, and I see it uh, sometimes when I do a baby cannon boom. For listeners who are not as aware of uh, Ben's presence on Twitter, when, when a big news story is about to hit that relates to the Russia investigation or some of those other topics, he tweets boom, and he often pairs it with a little gif of a cannon uh, blowing something up with its uh, a bottle of water or another object. Um, so it's a way of alerting people to an important development. In this. So that's, that's what he means by a baby cannon boom. So sometimes when I do that, you get, if you look at the responses, you see very large numbers of people sort of cheering the indictment that they expect is inevitable and going to come. And I understand why people feel that way. They want a sense of relief from from Trump. They want a sense that there is an end. But it does reflect a political expectation of Bob Mueller and the law enforcement world that his job is there to bring it down, right? And I think that is a dangerous expectation. And if Bob Mueller does the entire investigation and does it appropriately and it produces no more indictments and Donald Trump gets to say, See, I told you the whole thing was a hoax. From a rule of law point of view, that's a win. It may not be a political win from, right, from my right. vantage point, but that is all we can ask of Bob Mueller. And so I don't think that there is on the left a set of demands that is remotely morally comparable to the Trump people chanting, lock her up about Hillary Clinton or Trump himself 
demanding investigations against his political enemies. This is extraordinary misbehavior. But I do think we all need to be careful never to couch our political expectations as expectations of what law enforcement, if it were doing its job properly, would deliver us. So look, I think we have three things that we always need to remember are the demands we make of law enforcement. One is political neutrality and that it follow the rules. The second is a respect for the principle that they actually don't make the rules. I really think law enforcement has a role to play in telling the political system what they need to do their jobs and what the consequences of them not getting it may be. But at the end of the day, when the political system then says, no, actually, you don't get, as it is effectively told the FBI, you don't get the ability to set encryption rules. Then the right answer for the FBI is having identified the problem is to salute and, and operate under the rules that they're given. And then the third really just critical element is that law enforcement and intelligence agencies are compliant in a very detailed sense with the regimes that we set up in order to regulate them. So compliance, when, when we say legal compliance to a normal person, what that means is, you know, don't break the law. Right. But when you're exercising these awesome coercive powers, the idea that we set up these neurotically detailed regimes and, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is detailed beyond the wildest imagination of your listeners, save the ones who've like played with the statute. It's incredibly detailed. And the reason we do it that way is because we want to give people guidance about what they can and can't do in all kinds of very specific situations. And that means you have to have apparatuses in the executive branch, in the judiciary to process those cases. And when you corrupt those apparatuses, you do immense damage to our ability to expect, number one, thing number one, which is that law enforcement acts politically. And so compliance regimes are really, really important in a way that it's very hard to explain to people who haven't worked in this in this area. So, so this is one of the ways in which I think a lot of damage has already been done. Right now, we have all of these events going on, which we can't entirely explain. We don't know, at least at the time of recording this, for example, the exact reasons why the deputy head of the FBI ended up retiring early. Whether there really had been some serious malfeasance or whether this was just an excuse for the director of the FBI to, to get rid of him in, a, in, in an attempt to comply with political pressure from, from the Trump White House. Now, there's a few implications of that. The first is that if we aren't able to know about that, then rank-and-file FBI agents don't really know either. And rank-and-file FBI agents don't really know either then they have good reason to second-guess themselves before they pursue evidence that happens to come across their desk against a member of the administration or a Trump associate and so on. But, but in a second step, it also means that we don't really know what's being done in our name. I'm mean, thinking of ourselves as the citizens of a democracy. It's not just that we want uh, our institutions to be operating within those compliance regimes and to be sticking to the rule of law, not to be doing special favors to people because they're politically connected. We want to be sure of that. We want to know that. Um, and that is a concern that I do have about the law enforcement apparatus more broadly, that it's very, very difficult for ordinary citizens to track whether or not the FBI, let alone the CIA, is in fact compliant with all of those statutes. And that's a problem I don't know how to get around, because I agree in the first instance, with a need for these institutions. I agree that setting up those very detailed compliance regimes is one good way of dealing with that. But then it becomes, A, very difficult for people to understand those compliance regimes because ordinary citizens are not going to go through the hundreds of pages of the relevant act in order to understand what the nature of a regime is. 
And B, it becomes really difficult to actually make sure that first agencies do comply with them. And that's a problem that I don't quite know how to solve. So there is no solution to it. And I will say that on this point, the United States is leagues ahead of any other country in the world. Uh, so I was in Germany at the height of what they call La Faire NSA, uh, <laughs> which is where I got the name La Faire Russe. And I was at a conference at, at, at the University of Freiburg where I, I mean, you want to have an experience that makes you feel like you're wearing a giant cowboy hat and big boots, <laughs> go to a German university to defend the NSA. <laughs> um, and I walked that audience through the way the Snowden revealed programs actually work and what the public law in them is. And I did it with reference to public law. And I said to them, I have a challenge, which is, can anybody describe, not just in Germany, but any European country, can any continental European country describe with similar detail what their intelligence agencies are and aren't authorized to do? And of course, the answer is no. And there is no similar body of law. There is no similar set of oversight mechanisms. There is no similar set of public compliance mechanisms and accountability mechanisms. And there's nothing anywhere in the world remotely like the FISA court, which actually enforces and supervises a lot of that activity. And your point is 100% correct, both on the, the opacity side and on the complexity side. And yet, the question is, what's the alternative? You can't do right. intelligence operations in public. So there's a question here about how citizens can actually know what the government is doing. One of the basic prerequisites of really feeling like you're ruling yourself is that you understand what's being done in your name, that you are able to track the activities of uh, different um, public servants, and it's also, of course, to have the trust that there's not vast conspiracies going on at the heart of government. Now, there's a weird parallel here to the way in which what you call La Ferruse has played out. Um, I was really struck, I think in April or May of 2017, by a post that you did on Lawfare in which you go through all of the different possible explanations for the conflagration of facts we see around Trump and Russia. And I think there were six or seven options, and they went all the way from there's nothing to see here, it's all a coincidence, to, you know, Donald Trump is a paid-up Russian sleeper agent, with a lot of options in between. And I think you thought, sort of, obviously, the options somewhere in between were most likely. But the basic takeaway for me was that we're now in the same epistemological position that the citizens of non-democracies often are in, which is that they know something fishy is going on, and the best they can do is to make wild guesses as to what that something is. So first of all, I want to see what your update on that is. Which of those six or seven possible explanations, you don't have to go through all of them one by one, but, but what kind of explanations do you think at this point are consistent with the facts that we know? And then I wonder what we can reflect afterwards a little bit together about what that has already done to our democracy. Yeah, we don't okay. know that. So actually, I want to do the, first, first, the second question first. Okay. Because I think you know, one of the tools that we have to control the problem of not ultimately knowing the details of what our government is doing in the name is called trust in political figures. And by this, I don't mean do you like... George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton? Do you trust them to behave ethically in all circumstances? Would you want your daughter to hang out with Bill Clinton? Do you trust George W. Bush's judgment about how to interrogate terrorists? I'm not, I'm not talking about those questions. I'm saying when one of them says something about the activities of the United States, do you have a certain baseline faith that they're not lying and that that has some relationship to the way that intelligence agency or law enforcement agency is actually behaving? So to give, give a brass tacks example of that, when Barack Obama says the NSA is following the law, you may not 
agree with his reading of the law, and you thus might actually disagree with that as an analytical proposition. But do you disbelieve it as a factual proposition, right? And one of the enormous pieces of damage that this administration has done, and that it's not even the administration, it's the president personally, is that he's removed that layer of reassurance that I am your elected official and I vouch for the conduct of my government. And we all pretend not to trust politicians. But one thing that is important to the answer to your question is our basic faith in them as validators of the conduct of government. They're temporary custodians of it. If they get caught lying about it, they might suffer electoral consequences. Right? And Trump has really blown through that, and he's dragged others with him. That's the significance of what Devin Nunes has done with this FBI memo. That now the House Intelligence Committee chairman, who is supposed to be the one to say, I've seen all the information, and there's not a problem in this area. They're behaving lawfully. And by the way, you can trust me that if they're not behaving lawfully, I'm in a position to do something about it, right? And that's the traditional role of those uh, chairman and ranking members, that they supervise, they make sure everything's compliant, and then they validate it. And he's right, played right. exactly the opposite role. He's made up a controversy that we have no reason to believe is legitimate. And he's lied, according to the FBI, and released information in a reckless fashion, according to the Justice Department, with the help of the president. And when you have the people who are supposed to be overseers and validators behaving that way, it makes the problem you're describing enormously acute. Because then you actually, if you don't trust the agency, who are you supposed to trust? Devin Nunes, who you think is probably lying about the agencies, right? It actually compounds the problem rather than alleviates it. Now, as to the which of the theories about La Faire Russe are still on the table, so I don't have all seven of them in front of me, nor do I quite entirely remember how Jane and, and, and Quinta and I organized it. But look, the first of them I think we can remove from the table. The first of them is that there's some weird, smoky circumstances, but there's no actual relationship. And what makes you confident that that's the case? Well, so number one, we have uh, two members of the Trump campaign who have been indicted for lying about their interactions on behalf of the campaign or transition with the Russian state. Um, and I, I, think, I think at that point, you're not in scattered weird stuff that looks weird, but there's no f fire there. Right. right. right? You're, there's some degree of illicit, inappropriate contacts that were inappropriate enough that people were going to lie about it to, to keep it covered. Protect themselves, yeah. Um, and they're, you know, going to, uh, uh, And, had, and then lied about it and pled guilty to lying about it. So I think we can remove the, hey, these are, it was amateur hour and people, some people did some stupid things, but there is, there's no, as Trump says, absolutely no collusion. I, I think it is still very possible that the campaign was sufficiently disorganized that a certain group of people did what they did, and there was not a substantial coordinated effort, much less a decision that touched Donald Trump to do that. Stuff. Right, right. Uh, and in a way, some of the things we've seen seem to be perfectly conformable with that, right? I mean, one of the most shocking pieces of evidence we've seen is the email from Donald Trump Jr. saying, well, if you, if you say what it is, I'm loving it. But it also seems to be so off the cuff and immediate response and so on, that it doesn't look like he checked in with a secret group of conspirators and said, how do we want to play this and so on, right? He got the email, he saw somebody helping them and he says, why not? Why not? You know, normally when somebody within an organization takes an action, they're sort of at a senior level of the organization, you assume that that is constructively the action of the organization, right? right? right. And that there was some internal process that led to that. 
that may be giving the Trump campaign a little bit more credit than it deserves. You know, I forget who said we couldn't even collude with ourselves. There may be some truth to that. And so I am still open to the possibility that lots of individuals did lots of bad things, uh, including some pretty high-level individuals, but that there is not a, an organized effort that we're ever going to discern, much less a centralized decision, right, to collude, whatever that yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, I do think it is quite clear at this point that the Russian intelligence services made a concerted effort over time to penetrate the Trump campaign. And I think that is really quite obvious at this point. And the fact that they did not do anything of the kind to, you know, the Jeb Bush campaign <laughs> or the Hillary Clinton right, campaign right. or the Bernie Sanders campaign that we know of does suggest that they perceived something unusual about the Trump campaign. And I think we know what it was, which is that Donald Trump was standing up in public asking them to hack emails and his company was trying to organize uh, Trump Tower Moscow and he was praising Vladimir Putin. And so they looked at this situation and did what any professional, I don't, by the way, there's, I don't fault the Russians. They, it would have been malpractice <laughs> not to look at this group of people and said, say, what can we do with this? Right, right. And, and I think the anger being directed at the Russian intelligence services kind of misunderstands, you know, the way these things work. You look at those things and say, hey, can we get somebody close to a guy who has a 20% chance of being president? Should, can we, should we cultivate that person? Duh. You know, like, of course you should. I mean, that does give me some deeper thoughts about the degree to which that is an attractive feature of our modern politics and of the fact that I'm sure it is in certain ways necessary, but also that, you know, to, to say that, oh, well, you know, you just try to meddle in other people's political systems and that's just uh, malpractice not to do that. If you step back from it for a moment, it's a, it's a little worrying, but, oh, but oh, I agree wait, with wait, you. Wait, on wait, 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 hang on a second. So should we have a norm as a world political culture against covert intelligence interventions in other countries' democratic politics? And I believe the answer to that question is yes, that we should. I don't think the U.S.'s history of doing it is an attractive one. I don't want it done to us. I don't mind if Bibi Netanyahu comes to the United States and makes a public speech before a joint session of Congress that has a political valence. And I don't mind if, you know, Germany hosts candidate Barack Obama to it in a giant crowd, right? The things that are overt and above the table, I think are, you know, people do at their own political risk, but I don't have a problem with it. But I'm definitely sympathetic to the proposition that the covert intelligence intervention in another country's politics is, should be a, a taboo matter. That said, it is not. And countries do it. And the fact that we don't do it any longer doesn't mean we shouldn't be uh, savvy to the fact that other countries do and will attempt it. And when they do, they're going to deploy their intelligence apparatus in order to do it. So what I was saying about malpractice is given the political instruction right, they right. have as a, as a professional matter, Is this an opportunity of which a professional intelligence service would, would consider a flashing light in their face? And the answer to that is, of course. Moreover, even in a norm against political intervention, you're still trying to recruit agents. You're still trying to recruit mm. people who can provide you information. And this campaign screamed recruitment. Right, right. Like they, these were people walking around with shirts that said, recruit me, please. <laughs> and so if you're a foreign intelligence actor and you're looking at a campaign staffed by people like George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Paul Manafort, and people who, when you send them a probing email, they respond, I love it, you know, if it's later in the summer. This is a, a group of people with targets painted all over them. And any professional intelligence service 
even one that's not going to do it for purposes of interfering in the campaign. It's going to do it for... Well, that doesn't try to actually change the outcome of the election. It's just trying to trying get Trying to get... These people might be close to the president. Of course you want to see what kind of relationship you can develop with them. So I think those are two very separate yeah, yeah. things. And one of them is just an intelligence service being an intelligence service. It's not worth getting mad at the Russians. About. So, so I think we've said quite clearly what the minimum bound is, where you think, you know, the most friendly explanation of what happened might lie. What about the worst case scenario? I mean, how bad do you think this might actually be? So I have not removed Trump as a Russian agent from my list of possibilities. I think, as I thought when I wrote the piece, that it is a very unlikely explanation. But I do think you know, the, Lenin had a category that he invented, which is the useful idiot. And I think that is a very plausible way to understand that Donald Trump was somebody who was, maybe they had something on, maybe not, but was weirdly sympathetic for whatever reason and surrounded by people who were approachable. Hmm. What precisely that reflects, I will wait for Bob Mueller to, to tell me what we can learn. But I do think the most innocent explanations are now off the table. The sort of mean explanation, which is that this was a very naive and perhaps compromised person who was surrounded by people who were recruitable, is probably the most likely possibility. And I know it's very difficult to predict that as well, but what does that mean for how to go forward? In particular, it now seems quite clear that as long as Republicans hold the House, there's not going to be any robust checking of Donald Trump. And we've heard repeatedly the intention of Trump to potentially fire Miller and so on. You know, this is a podcast that tries to search for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat of a populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. That's the tagline, as you know. What does that mean for this? I mean, how do you deal with a problem of an American president who at the very least has been a useful idiot and at the worst may have been much, much worse than that? A Republican Party that now appears um, utterly complicit in his resistance to being investigated. What do you do to ensure that he can't do any damage to, to the United States internationally and, and to get to the bottom of this? without completely politicizing law enforcement in such a way that thinking that the FBI should be independent just becomes a Democratic Party political position. So I think you have to have, think of it as a multi-pronged discussion. So number one, we must insist on full, complete, unencumbered investigation that is enabled to do the things it needs to do investigatively to find out both as a counterintelligence matter and as a criminal matter what needs to be found out. And the discipline that we need to accept for ourselves is that we accept the outcome of that investigation. If Bob Mueller has the opportunity to conduct a full investigation as he sees it, whatever the outcome is, however favorable it is to Donald Trump, I accept it without reservation. That is my legal answer to the question. Now, so, hang on. Prong two is the political prong. I don't need to know more than I already know to believe that Donald Trump should be impeached and removed from office. That is not because I'm imagining facts that don't exist. I would impeach and remove him on the sole basis of his interactions with law enforcement in the first six months of his tenure, unless he apologized for it and said, you know, I've seen the error of my ways. I think that is unacceptable behavior on the part of a president and he needs to be removed. So I don't actually need more information than I already happen to have in order to know what should happen to Donald Trump. It is a separate question. It's a political accountability question. If you believe that as I believe, and you believe it as strongly as I believe it, you need a different political constellation in order to effectuate that belief. So there's a political accountability dimension. And from my point of view, the political accountability answer is 
the Republican enablers need to lose some elections. And I am not a partisan person. I'm as anti-partisan as it gets. I will personally not be supporting any Republicans because I actually think it is important that the party pay an enormous price for this. And one consequence of that price should be to change the political constellation that is currently protecting and enabling him. That's prong two. Prong three, which is still separate from that, is insisting at all times on the norms and behaviors that we consider minimal decent. And it doesn't matter how many times the president lies, we need to point it out every single time. The moment, the day we don't point it out, we've accepted it. We need to, every time, people say, you know, it's hysterical, you're letting Trump set your agenda. If you believe in behaviors by the president that respect certain democratic norms, you have to police that line every time. So separately from insisting that the investigation proceed, demanding political accountability for what has already happened, there is still a third prong, which is noting, chronicling, demanding answers for every single violation as they happen in real time. And I think between those three, that's the only way I know to deal with the situation. Ben, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you two have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. Come to one of my events in the next few months. Take a selfie with me and put it up on Twitter and Facebook like a few brave souls did when I was touring Germany last week. It was a real pleasure to have one listener of a good fight at each and single event. Never two, never three, but one at each event. It was a lot of fun seeing you all there. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.